Welcome. This is the Grok Science Show. I am one of your co-hosts, Tom Stewart, here with fellow, well, no longer fellow graduate student. He's now an adult. He is now a graduated student. Uh, this is Ben Krinsky. Recent graduate of the University of Chicago's Committee on Evolutionary Biology and recipient of the Christine Murizan Science and Technology Policy Fellowship at the National Academy in Washington, D.C. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to talk to you for a number of reasons, the first of which is your science, which you just recently defended as part of your thesis to the university and to the department. And the other thing is that you've been working independently and soon to be professionally with uh, policymakers and kind of trying to shape how graduate students are trained, how science should be incorporated into governmental policy more broadly, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, just finished graduate school and looking to uh, pursue this new Exciting, um, also somewhat scary, new career direction, but I'm, I am excited. It should be, should be good. Yeah, so uh, what, oh man, I'll ask a super broad question. Please do. What was your thesis about? <laughs> so I suppose the, the biggest picture summary I can, uh, I can give is that uh, the research in our lab, which my advisor is named Manuel Long, he's a professor here at the University of Chicago, and in the most general terms, we're interested in the origins of, origins of genetic variation. And of course, genetic variation underlies various processes. So I suppose even the even bigger picture is we're interested in the origins of sort of new biological uh, functions or phenotypes. And we study that at the genetic level. So the, the main emphasis is on uh, what we call recently evolved or recently duplicated genes. These are cases where you have some kind of mutational event in which a new copy or an extra copy of some gene arises, and then that opens up all kinds of potential for subsequent evolutionary processes. Okay. And your model system is the fly? That's right. So people in our lab work actually on a number of different systems, but most of us do work on the, uh, I don't want to say lowly, but the famous in scientific circles, uh, fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, and actually a couple of closely related species that are very similar to the uh, to melanogaster, the classic laboratory fruit fly. Okay. And so for your dissertation, you were studying the origin of a particular gene Tell me a little bit about that, what its sure. story is. So this is actually a project that was started by a former m member of the lab, and I sort of picked up the baton five or so years ago. It is one of these interesting case studies where there was a, a duplication event, that is to say an extra copy of a gene arose in fruit flies about five or so million years ago. And then this gene actually underwent a period of very rapid molecular evolution. And we can determine that by actually looking at the sequence of this gene at the DNA level, also at the protein level, that there has been a lot of changes in the new gene relative to its parent. And it sort of caught our, our interest and, and really piqued our curiosity because it had undergone this very rapid period of, of evolutionary change, but nonetheless seemed to retain its coding potential, that is to say still retain some kind of molecular function. And in the course of my research, as well as uh, that of other members of the lab, we determined that, in fact, it seems to have taken on some, some rather important roles in the fly reproductive system, specifically the male reproductive system in flies. So this is a gene that several millions of years ago did not exist in this species or that's right in this lineage it originated and now it does something really important exactly and so that's kind of surprising you would think that maybe new things might be doing sort of peripheral less critical parts of a fly's life yes <laughs> its life processes and development yes indeed this is actually a sort of a paradox that we still are wrestling with in the long lab and in other research groups all over the world is the sort of recent realization that things that formerly genes for example that did not exist do seem to rapidly take on roles that can be actually critical or essential for survival for various kinds of processes and we still don't fully understand how this is possible after all prior to the origination of say a new gene the species were living and thriving and reproducing just fine. So somehow the, the underlying mechanisms can actually 
change in rather dramatic ways while sort of maintaining fitness or survival sort of at the phenotypic level. But there's still a lot of details that have yet to be worked out. What is this gene? What is the name of it? We call it Zeus. Why is that? <laughs> so uh, I wish I could say it had to do with the, there, there were some poetic connection to Greek mythology and Zeus's perhaps romantic exploits. However, I think it was, it was chosen just because there had been a tradition previously of naming recently duplicated genes after different mythological figures. <laughs> My advisor actually discovered one of the first examples of a recently duplicated gene in fruit flies and I believe that one was, was is called Jingwei. I hope I have my, my, my story straight. And I think he chose that also just because Jingwei was a was an important character in Chinese mythology and he just found it to be a very poetic and beautiful story and wanted to bring that into his science. And so then that just started this sort of uh, weird little cottage industry of um, naming genes after mythological figures. That's funny. There's kind of a cottage industry of scientists making weird names for things. I remember there's a professor here who used to name species after Lord of the Rings characters. Oh yes, the the ever uh, famous Lee Van Valen, uh, the late Lee Van Valen, was a professor in um, the Ecology and Evolution Department for many years. He, yes, was a huge fan of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I guess Tolkien's other writings. And yes, as far as I know, named a number of species using Latinate names, but, but with roots that were derived from not one, but actually multiple invented languages from the Tolkien mythology. Nerds in science. <laughs> Who would have thought. Indeed. Um, so how do you, how did you guys figure out what this new gene is doing? Well, it was a sort of a, an interesting sort of piecemeal or stepwise sort of process as science often is. The first step was, as I said, just discovering that it existed and that it had undergone this these changes at the molecular level. Then subsequently we figured out that indeed it was still expressed. And then we were subsequently able to localize that expression. So figure out that it was specifically being turned on in the male reproductive system of flies, but nowhere else. And so then that got us thinking about how it might be having some influence on reproductive development or on fertility and things like that. And then mm. subsequent experiments to actually show that it seemed to be having some important role there. So how, how often do new genes evolve in this way? Is this something that that's a great question, and uh, I wish I could quote a rate per million years in Drosophila, which I probably should be able to do, but it, it escapes me at the moment. <laughs> well, there are a number of ways new genes can arise. That's right. And so this is, is this a, one of the common ways, or is it... Um, it is a fairly common way, and I should say, even though I can't quote a number, the it is actually a pretty common process. So... As you said, there are a number of sort of mutational mechanisms. These are different kinds of molecular processes that happen that can give rise to a new a new gene. And we know that these processes are happening basically all the time. So there are actually lots of cases where you just get errors in copying DNA, for example, that give rise to a new gene. Now, the important thing to, to note is that most of the time these things don't have any particularly important functional or evolutionary consequence. They're often lost because they do something detrimental or they simply are redundant and just disappear from the population. But there are now actually, I would say, several dozen well-characterized cases from a number of different species in which a new gene has arisen and then actually we now know is doing something important for the organism. I see. Very cool. So... What's what's the next step? I know you're not actively uh, involved in leading this research now that you've graduated, but is the lab looking to move this project forward in a particular direction, do you think? Uh, yes, I think so. There are still lots of open questions having to do with this Zeus gene in flies, as well as a number of other sort of promising candidates. And, well, I, I've sort of passed the torch uh, <laughs> to one of the younger graduate students in the lab, and hopefully he will pursue Zeus and some of its other implications. And in general, I think the lab is moving more in a functional direction to really try and understand what some of these new genes are doing. So research, as always, goes on.
And speaking of moving in new directions, you too <laughs> are about to shift to a new kind of focus. So I know uh, policy has been something that's interested you for a long time, both as a fan of the West Wing and as a <laughs> citizen. And, uh, uh, ambivalent fan of the West Wing, I think <laughs> is how I often say it. Uh, but that's another whole discussion. <laughs> yeah, so a couple of years ago, you were involved with several other students in trying to draft your own version of a solution to how graduate students should be trained. It's something we've talked about a bunch on this show. Right. Um, but there's a constant debate about what the role of graduate school is for students, if there's too many students being trained, if there's enough jobs, or what, yeah. where all the source of this discomfort comes from the fact that most PhDs do not become research scientists. Is that right. something we should be worried about or just... Right. Yeah. So. This it's it's this definitely seems to be on everyone's mind. It actually this came up purely by coincidence this afternoon. I was talking to a friend of mine over lunch who is currently a postdoctoral fellow, and uh, he had just been to a, a discussion group where they were sort of debating this this question about the whole scientific training system, the pipeline of PhDs, and what kinds of opportunities they have once they've finished their degrees. This is perhaps a bit of a tangent, but this this one just to stay on this one facet for a second. I think there still is an outstanding debate about whether or not there are quote unquote too many. PhD students. Because on the one hand, if you look at the, the academic workforce itself, there are clearly many more PhDs being trained than there are academic research positions in places like universities. And so then that would seem to lead to the, to the conclusion that perhaps we have this something... A surplus. A, a surplus, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, in economic terms. Exactly. A surplus of labor. On the other hand, if you look sort of more broadly at society, you see that lots of PhDs get jobs in various occupations and industries. And the actually, the unemployment rate among PhDs is on average much lower than the overall unemployment rate in the economy. So I think it's still a bit of a thorny question because obviously people seem, many of them seem to make their way in the world. But even if we take this slightly more optimistic picture that PhDs can go off and do other things in society, I think there's still some serious questions about how efficient the training is and whether or not those kinds of opportunities are really being promoted and, and encouraged. And oftentimes it's something that those who are responsible for the mentorship and training of students don't have too much experience themselves in how to prepare students. Precisely. They train to become scientists and teachers. And so how does somebody with all that experience go on to train someone to become a effective policy, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Policy person. So, so you worked with some other students to put together a proposal? Yeah, it was a contest. It was held by the National Science Foundation. They were asking graduate students to come up with Short, yeah, short proposals that would, in some way, both improve the graduate education experience for students and give them perhaps more of these opportunities outside of the academy, but then also with a more sort of noble public mission of, of encouraging ways of encouraging scientists to sort of bring their skills and bring their expertise into different sectors of society. Because after all, we need people with various technical training sort of throughout the economy and society. And so yes, we we put together a, a short proposal, and we um, ended up placing third in the in the national contest, which was very gratifying. And essentially, our, our outline actually has sort of a very similar sort of program has actually been implemented by the National Institutes of Health. Oddly enough, it's just sort of a coincidence. The basic idea is to let students, as they as they do now, work on their research projects, develop their their dissertations, but then carve out a short period of time, roughly equivalent to, say, doing a teaching assistantship, to do a short externship or internship in organizations like um, nonprofit organizations or government agencies, just to give graduate students more exposure to these other sort of aspects of society or occupations they might consider doing after uh, finishing their degrees. Cool. Yeah. It seems that that suggestion was met with some positivity by those that were Indeed. thinking about that, too. Yeah. And it's been adopted elsewhere since. Yeah. So... 
Thank you for thinking about these things. Well, it's not, as I said, it, the fact that it, it coincidentally seemed to come up in a completely different context through the NIH suggests that this sort of thinking is, is in the air. It's on, it on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I just hear a lot about it publicly. Also, there's a there's kind of an awkward tension, too, among, I'll say as a Latino, when there's discussion of recruiting students from underrepresented backgrounds, mm. what does it mean to recruit promising students into a really challenging and oftentimes very frustrating profession or career in which, I don't know, the you could make more money doing other things. You mm -hmm. could probably have more free time doing other things. Uh, it's certainly very valuable, but it's not, to try to become a scientist is not for everyone too. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's kind of placing a funny tension in the recruitment process and increasing diversity in the sciences simultaneously i think it's being discussed yeah that that's a that's really fascinating and important sort of other axis of of uh, to consider because we still i mean as you well know there's still a huge problem of underrepresentation of many groups in the sciences yeah. and we obviously want to move to a, a more uh, representative place but given the overall challenges i yeah it's it's very thorny i, I there's a lot of room for improvement and intention in the mentorship and training of indeed. graduate students you will be heading imminently to D.C. to start working at the National Academy of Sciences. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? What's that going to be? Sure. So the name of the fellowship program is the Christine Merzion Science and Technology Science, uh, Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. It's a bit of a mouthful, as you can tell. It is basically a program to bring scientists, both those still in graduate school, actually, through those who have completed their degree within the last five years, to Washington, D.C. to uh, participate in the activities of the uh, the National Academies. The National Academies themselves is kind of an interesting organization. They were chartered, I believe, if I get to have the year right, in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln. This was during a period of industrialization in the United States. And I think there was, uh, my history is, is a little bit vague on this point, but I think there was a sort of a general acknowledgement that increasingly the government would need scientific and technical expertise as the economy was ra so rapidly changing. Yeah. And so the academies were chartered to essentially be an advisory body to the government um, on these scientific and technical matters. But interestingly enough, the National Academies themselves are actually are not part of the federal government. So unlike the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health or many of these other government agencies, the National Academies don't get an appropriation from Congress. They actually are like an independent foundation. They have their own endowment. They get philanthropic gifts. They raise money from, from various other organizations. But explicitly as part of their charter is this mission statement to be the government's source of scientific expertise. So essentially what that means is that members of Congress or members of the executive branch, the president, the various cabinet level agencies or bureaus will say there'll be some topic that has scientific implications and say, well, climate change, for example, climate change or uh, yes, or, or uh, nanotechnology or, or any number of other things. Um, and they want to know how the U.S. is addressing such problems or what we know about them. And um, they turn to the National Academies to bring together expertise, scientists who are both in-house as well as from institutions across the country to write reports and help to shape government policy as it relates to those scientific matters. Okay. And so you'll be joining that organization with what responsibility? Like what are you right. trying to do there? So the way the program works is they bring in these young scientists and basically assign them to one of these various sort of subcommittees within the National Academy. So under the National Academy of Sciences, for example, there's various sub-organizations that have authority or sort of advise the government on matters ranging from um, energy policy to agricultural policy, environmental policy, health policy, all these kinds of things. And I will be working for actually a committee 
just called Committee on Science and Public Policy, which is very broad. But in general, what they do is they write reports about matters like graduate education, research funding, research infrastructure, just sort of the general health and sort of well-being of America's scientific enterprise. So I will be working there. I'm not exactly sure which projects I'll be working on yet, but the idea behind the fellowship is to see how scientific advice is sort of brought together and presented in a way that is hopefully of some meaning to government decision-making. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really informative. It's the kind of thing that I wish I knew more about, certainly. Yeah. I think scientists only really get to experience it when they're confronting funding agencies often, or if they're asked to serve as experts on some sort of case, I think, that the government might ask them to, to comment on. So it's, it's a, in many ways, a big shift from what you've been doing, but there is some continuity. I mean, there's a lot of sorting through huge piles of data, presumably, right. trying to understand arguments, solving problems. Yeah. I think that one thing that I've, I've learned here at the University of Chicago is to sort of try and appreciate some of the concerns and, and, and sort of perspectives of different areas of science, at least in the course of my own research. I've done work related to genetics, related to sort of evolution and, and changes in populations, as well as a lot of genomics, which is sort of quickly verges into sort of the biomedical community. And so I think hopefully having this broader perspective will help in this sort of policy role because over and over again, as I've looked into these kinds of opportunities to do science policy, they all pretty much say the same thing, which is that is the, the sort of the frequently asked questions section, for example, of a website will say, will I use my specific scientific expertise on a day-to-day -day basis? And the answer is often no, actually. It's because there are so many diverse problems and they just need people who have some sort of technical savvy to address them that you'll often be confronted with topics from a wide range of disciplines. So. I can't say I'm a renaissance man. I, I'm, I'm a little rusty when it comes to physics and chemistry, but, but hopefully at least having some, somewhat of a broader perspective will be of, of some use. Well, certainly the training, I think, will be useful. It's exciting. It'll be fun. It, is, it is very exciting. The other, the other aspect of it that's kind of a bit strange is that the fellowship is actually only three months long, which is short for a postdoctoral fellowship. But it seems like the D.C. policy community is very dynamic. People talk about, I've spoken to a, a couple of friends who have sort of gone in this policy direction and the phrase that I've often heard is, is when you're in DC, it's sort of like drinking from a fire hose. There's just lots going on at once and it can be overwhelming, but I'm, I'm excited about it. And I'm hoping that this will be a sort of a stepping stone to maybe something more, more permanent in the, in the policy world. Yeah. There's something, maybe it's just my own cynicism and sensitivity sometimes, but I feel like oftentimes there's an absence of technological or scientific perspective in the legislative process. Yeah. It seems as though what I hear coming from people that are in positions to actually influence these things is often lacking in, shall we say, finesse in the way yeah. they approach these ideas. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Jack Inhofe and, you know, yeah. it can be discouraging. But why, why do you think that is? Is that just my perception? No, or is it... I, I think, I mean, it's it's easy to get very cynical. I think there is... I hate to say it, but a lack of scientific or technical expertise among many members of Congress and many elected officials. However, I, what gives me some hope, well, two things at least give me hope. One is that what doesn't get publicized is that across the government, both in the halls of Congress and also especially within the various agencies like NSF, EPA, etc., there's this huge community of civil servants, people who actually are experts mm -hmm. and actually are day-to-day -day doing the work of government. And, and I think many of them doing, you know, doing a very good job and, you know, with their expertise. The other thing I would say is that organizations like the National Academies still play actually a pretty important role. So even if, for example, certain members of Congress uh, might say, say or do things that seem very anti-scientific, 
there's a bit of a, I think perhaps a, um, an ascertainment bias. Those are things we perhaps hear about. That's true. Whereas there, whereas there's lots of sort of legislative work going on and and back and forth. Say, for example, drawing upon experts at a place like the National Academies, which then does in fact shape how policies get written. So yes, I, I'm also cynical. <laughs> but I mean, most of America is about Congress these days. I think their their approval rating is currently seven percent. But that's the lowest the, ever. It's the lowest ever. But beyond the headlines, I think there there is reason to have some hope. Uh, of course, on the other hand, it would be nice if perhaps more people from different professional backgrounds, not just lawyers and a few doctors, ran for Congress. There's currently, I believe, one or two physicists in Congress, and otherwise there's no no one else who is a scientist. Maybe one engineer, I'm not sure. But um, certainly it would be nice if there were perhaps a more even representation of different professions or occupations in our government. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful sentiment to have. And... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's hoping. Yeah. So, thanks, Ben, for stopping by. <laughs> Thank you, Tom, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's it's always good to hear about not just science, but efforts to influence how it works socially, culturally, politically. So, <laughs> so thank you. My pleasure. This is where we ended the interview at one point, but then Samantha Thomas, one of the co-hosts, continued to talk to Ben, and we and we kept the audio recording. Came up with some really cool stuff, so I wanted to put that in here too. This is them talking about genomics and its implications for human health. Ben. Yes. Is genomics the answer? Is genomics the answer? What a great, <laughs> what a wonderful question. I think it is one answer, or I think it is has an important role to play. I'll put it that way. As you may well know, there's a huge emphasis on genomics these days, especially in, say, the way National Institutes of Health funding is going. I mean, tons and tons of labs are, you know, genomics labs doing lots and lots of sequencing, generating lots and lots of data. I think a lot of that is very interesting and very important. I think that there might, well, I think we need perhaps to start moving in a direction sort of above the level of the genome to understand more about sort of the functional aspects of genomics. And I think, you know, that's it's not to suggest that that's not happening. But what I think... What does that mean above the genome? Oh, so the, um, so when we talk about the genome, we're talking about this, basically this information within cells, this encoded in this molecule called DNA, um, which we represent as this sort of string of letters, which in turn correspond to particular proteins that get made by the cell. And a lot of what's been happening, gosh, we'll say in the last 15 years or so, is lots and lots of sequencing of that DNA. So basically unraveling that code, as it's often put in sort of poetic terms. And there's also in the last few years been some work on gene expression, so that is sequencing RNA. So once the DNA, in order to be the information to be useful to the cell has to be transcribed into RNA. So we, we have a lot of sequence at the DNA level. We have a lot of sequence at the RNA level. But of course, there's lots of other processes happening in the cell to turn that information to proteins. And then those proteins are doing lots and lots of complicated things. So I think there will, as, as this thing sort of progress, there will be sort of more and more integration of these different kinds of information to really understand what's happening um, in the cell. And those processes would include things like translation rate, exactly. protein decay, exactly. protein modification, yes. RNA modification, yes. DNA modification. Things that uh, you are no doubt very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> it's overwhelming, Ben. <laughs> I know, I know. There's, there is there is so, so much going on. And, and that's why uh, nowadays, I mean, the field of systems biology, as it's so-called, is, is in vogue. Even though um, I hate to be cynical, I, I still haven't really heard a single pithy uh, definition of what systems biology is. But it just seems to be, let's try and make sense of all of these data. <laughs> okay. So where do you think the biggest promise for genomics is in medicine? Oh, well, uh, sort of getting outside of my, I, uh, my Ken. Or in, in biology. Yeah. I, um, 
I mean, I think that there is actually, there are a lot of promises that are made, and, and some people perhaps have gotten a little bit cynical about that. But I, I actually do mm-hmm. think that diagnostic genomics has potential. I think we now know more about variants that are associated with different diseases. I think more of those are being discovered. And because the, the cost of sequencing and the speed with which we can sequence just tons of DNA, the cost is coming way down, the speed is going way up. I think so. routine sequencing is going to become more and more, um, it will be more routine, it'll be more commonplace. And you say people have gotten cynical about that because we haven't had those major associations that we were expecting. Exactly. One yeah. gene, one disease. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because it is so complicated. There there often are as multiple loci involved. There's all kinds of other biological processes involved. So it is hard to find that smoking gun. So most of the time you can't find that smoking gun. But I, as I say, I think, I think perhaps the biggest problem was that with the dawn of the so-called genomics era, when we could sequence, you know, whole human genomes, for example, there was this, the first draft of the human genome was sequenced around 2001 or so, and it was indeed a scientific milestone, but I think the way it was promoted, it was as if that was sort of enough. Like, we, we, have, we have this information, and now we sort of will know everything about medicine. Well, of course, that's not the case. Sort of, once you have the sequence, that's when the real work begins. <laughs> we just understand what it means and how it works and what it's doing. And so I think we're still in that, in some ways, in that those early days, we're sort of trying to figure out what to do with all of this data. But I, I think there are interesting things there that will be important. Would you say that the major limitation is a computational one or a, a lack of biological understanding? Um, I don't know. I, uh, I'd be actually inter- curious to hear what your, your answer to that question is. I think, I, I think the computational tools are, are coming along a pace. I think we're not, we're not limited at this point. I mean, computers keep getting faster and people's expertise in bioinformatics keeps getting better. So we, we, I don't think we have a sort of a capacity problem. I, I would say the biological understanding is really where we have the biggest challenges. I must really understand what all this information means and to really put it into a conceptual framework. And this is where I, I start to sound more like an evolutionary biologist because comparative genomics is something that is still very much in its infancy. We have, you know, we have good sequences from a number of canonical model species, um, but we're only just starting to generate these kind of data from lots of different species. So getting a sense of diversity and doing the kind of proper comparisons is, I think, an, another step that's really important that still is sort of ongoing. Bring a, a sense of diversity and evolution into the whole uh, field. Thanks again for listening. That was an interview with Ben Krinsky. We'll see you next week. Keep on grokking. Thank you.